You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. And a manifesto for freedom and the editor of the Libertarian Reader. Boaz is a provocative commentator and a leading authority on domestic issues such as education, choice, drug legalization, the growth of the government, and the rise of libertarianism. Boz is the former editor of the New Guard magazine and was executive director of the Council for a Competitive Economy prior to joining Cato in 1981. The earlier edition of the Libertarian Mind, titled Libertarianism, a Premier, was described by the Los Angeles Times as a well-researched manifesto of libertarian ideas. His other books include The Politics of Freedom and the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Please join me in inviting David Bose. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is a great conference, um, and I know there's lots of stuff running all day, so to have people here still at 5 o'clock when there are other alternatives is very impressive. A uh, bit of a crowded podium up here, but... What a great time to be a libertarian. Or at least that's what I was thinking a few years ago when uh, we had the Ron Paul campaign and then the Rand Paul election and the Tea Party and marijuana legalization and gay marriage and then Edward Snowden's revelations about mass spying and people were talking about a libertarian moment. And then suddenly, in a moment's time, that seemed to pass and suddenly we had Trump and Sanders and Clinton and around the world Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Marine Le Pen and now Marion Le Pen right over here in Washington and everybody's talking about nationalism and protectionism and socialism so it looks like maybe things have turned the wrong way. Maybe we should all move to Brazil where the student libertarians took down the president of Brazil. But I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when nobody was talking about libertarianism, moments or other. We just hoped they would call us librarians instead of libertines when they got it mixed up. But one of the things that I try to tell libertarian audiences and non-libertarian audiences is that lots more Americans are libertarians than realize it. A lot of that is definitional, of course, depends on how you define libertarian, but I want to tell Americans, if you consider yourself fiscally conservative and uh, socially tolerant, socially liberal, if you think the government should get out of your pocket and out of your bedroom, if you don't think the federal government can manage the economy or the world, then you just might be a libertarian. If you hold those views, you don't fit into the liberal box or the conservative box. And I want people like that to start thinking of themselves as libertarians. Maybe they're moderate libertarians and many of us are radical libertarians. That's fine. Um, like I said, it's a crowded podium for these notes. Um, I want us to be the vanguard of that movement, but I want more people to understand that they really should think of themselves as part of that. So that's part of why I wrote The Libertarian Mind, was to get more people thinking in that way. When we want to go out and introduce people to libertarianism, we have to meet people where they are. But first, we should know where we are. We should know what it is we stand for and then think about 
how we're going to market those ideas. So what is it? What is this libertarian idea that we all believe in? I like Adam Smith's phrasing from The Wealth of Nations, the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. The simple system of natural liberty. That's what I think libertarianism is. That's what liberty is. It's not a complicated system. It's basically just leave people alone. They respect your rights. You respect their rights. Everything works. In the libertarian mind, the first line of the book is libertarianism is the philosophy of freedom. That's a pretty good summary, too. And the important thing there is personal freedom and economic freedom. And this is the problem we've had for a long time in the United States that a lot of people who believe in economic freedom are not so keen on a lot of personal freedoms and vice versa. Libertarians believe in freedom across the board, liberty across the board, personal freedom and economic freedom, political freedom, human rights, all those things. About 30 years ago, there was a best-selling book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And, you know, I like to say you learn the essence of libertarianism, which is in fact also the essence of civilization, in kindergarten. What do you learn in kindergarten? Well, many things. But among those things are don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. If you do that, if you hold to those ideas, then you're basically a libertarian. And if your society holds to those ideas, then you will have a successful society. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. That really is the essence of all the public policy that libertarians talk about. But let me go into a little more depth, and I'm going to talk about three key ideas that I think make up the libertarian overall idea. Number one is individual rights. Individual rights that we have as a person by virtue of being a human being, not prescribed from government. Libertarians don't always agree on exactly where these rights come from. Some say from God, God-given rights. Some say from nature. They're natural rights. They're in the nature of the human being. It's not in the nature of ants to be free. It's not in the nature of cows to be free. Although there was a cow in the news the other day who seemed to think it was. Um, but it is in the nature of human beings to be free. The Declaration of Independence kind of finesses this issue by referring to the laws of nature and of nature's God. So whichever way you look at it, Declaration of Independence has you covered. There are libertarians who don't think either nature or God is a very good example, and they might say consequences. We have or we want to respect individual rights because we can trace the consequences of respecting rights or not respecting rights. I think you find a lot of economists fall into that category. They don't, they don't believe in this religious stuff about rights. They do believe that if you look at all the ways government can interfere with what we see, what I see, as individual rights, they see that the consequences will not be good, whether that's taxes or crony capitalism or the minimum wage or whatever. What libertarians do agree on, I think, is that these rights are imprescriptible. That is, they are not prescribed by any human agency. They do not come from the king. They don't come from 
the President. They don't come from the Parliament or Congress. They don't even come from the Constitution. We hear a lot of times, the Constitution gives me the right to do that. That's not correct. The Constitution protects your right to do that. The Constitution guarantees your right to do that. But you had the rights before we created the Constitution. We created the Constitution, as the Declaration of Independence says, to secure these rights. Governments are instituted among men. Not to give us rights, but to secure these rights. So what we agree on is that the rights are imprescriptible and individual. Second key topic, spontaneous order. Now, if you've taken a political theory class, then you've heard about the difference between normative and positive ideas. Normative ideas, what should be, what is just. Well, that's kind of individual rights. Individual rights you would call a normative idea. It prescribes the way things ought to operate. Spontaneous order is a positive idea. It just states the way things are. You don't have to be a libertarian to observe spontaneous order. Spontaneous order exists, whether you notice it or not. Um, but it is often the case that libertarians or free market economists are the ones who study spontaneous order and understand its importance. And so many people have trouble seeing this spontaneous order. To a lot of us, order seems planned, right? To get yourself to this conference, you had to do some planning. To put on this conference, people had to do a lot of planning. To create Students for Liberty or the Cato Institute, had to do a lot more planning. And to create a network of finance and telecommunications that spans the globe so that you can go to a bank on a Sunday in France or Indonesia and get money out of a machine from people who don't know you, who don't meet you, who will never know you, that takes an incredible amount of planning to make that happen. So to smart people, to intellectual people, it looks like the more complex the system, the more planning is required. If you live here in the Washington area, getting here, pretty much you had to get yourself out of bed, get onto the metro or whatever, not a whole lot of planning. Putting the conference together, more complicated, more planning. Creating a worldwide bank, more complicated, lots more planning. What's hard for a lot of people to see, and I think maybe particularly hard for intellectuals to see who think in these rational constructivist terms is that the most important institutions of society typically are spontaneous orders. They have evolved. They have not been planned. They are, as the Scottish Enlightenment said, of human action but not of human design. Now, what are these institutions that I say are spontaneous orders. Well, one of them is language. Now, you all took an English class when you were young, and you heard the rules of the English language. You were taught how to spell, how to do grammar, maybe even how to diagram a sentence. But the rules themselves evolved. There are dictionaries and grammarians and professors of English these days who tell us what the rules are, but the rules evolved over many years. If you've tried to read Shakespeare, it's a little difficult. doesn't look quite like English. And if you've tried to read Chaucer, it really doesn't look like English. It's hard to, and all of that was spontaneous evolution. That's an example of spontaneous order. Within the language debates, there are language debates, 
Uh, by the way, I always point out, you know, the French language has an actual academy of the French language, and they do try to plan it, and they say, no, no, you cannot say le weekend and le computer. You must use the French word, la fin de la semaine, uh, whatever the word for computer is. But mostly they fail, and besides which, French isn't a static language. There was Latin, then there was Old French, Middle French, now there's Modern French. Maybe we're up to postmodern French. So at any given point, you can try to freeze it, but the language continues to evolve. Now, within language debates, there are prescriptivists and descriptivists, and the debate there is generally the descriptivists say, the point of a grammarian or a dictionary is just tell you what the language is, how do people use the word, so on. The prescriptivists say, no, some things are right and some things are wrong. Um, there is a difference between uninterested and disinterested, and you ought to use the difference. You ought to know the difference. If you want to communicate with me and you say uninterested when you mean disinterested, then I will get the wrong idea because I know what those words mean. A few years ago, a younger editor at the Cato Institute sent something up for my approval, and it had a phrase in it like, between you and I. And I circled it, and then I said to him, how the heck did that get all the way to my desk, between you and I? He said, oh, it's optional. Said, no, it's not optional. It's between you and me. It's not optional to say I. He said, well, in his book, Steven Pinker says that it's optional. I said, well, then Steven Pinker is dead to me. But the reality is the language does change and things that my father or his father might have insisted on really are no longer the way you have to do it in English. And if enough people say between you and I, and especially enough educated people, then the language will change. And eventually that may be the reality. Language is a spontaneous order. It evolves over many centuries, and then we write down the rules and we try to obey them because it helps if we all use the same rules for communicating. But it did evolve. Law. Most of us think law is something written by Congress, written by the state legislature. These days, written by nameless, faceless bureaucrats in square buildings in Washington. Um, people with a little more sophistication might say, well, a law comes from the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, to some extent that's true, but the reality is the fundamental law that governs our lives, the common law, the law of property, the law of tort, the laws that decide whether if my tree falls on your property it's your problem or my problem, those things evolved over many centuries. In the beginning, a tree fell on somebody else's property, and the question arose, who's responsible for the damage? And how do you settle that? Well, they probably called in a neighbor, maybe a wise man from down the street, and they said, who should be responsible for this? And a decision was made. And over the years, some people came to be respected for their wisdom in deciding such things. And they decided them usually on the basis of precedent. The last time this happened, we decided this way. The last time this happened, we decided this way, but the circumstances are different. Are they different enough to change the rule? Some people were wise at doing that, and eventually some of those people got turned to a lot, and eventually they became known as judges. And that was their profession to apply the law to new circumstances. 
And this went on for a long time, and then governments got involved. And mostly at first, it was probably kings just saying, well, I'm making a rule. I'm changing that. I'm changing that rule. My family is exempt anyway, but I'm changing the rule as it affects you. And then later, we got more regularized legal systems. First, we have judges today still who mostly apply the common law along with statutory law and precedent, which is common law. But we also have legislatures all over the world passing laws that, whose basic purpose is to overrule the common law. Because after all, if we were just following the common law of property and contract and tort, we wouldn't need all these regulations and statutes and everything. So mostly what legislatures are doing is distorting the law introducing monkey wrenches into the law. The law itself, however, continues to evolve. If you're a corporate lawyer, every time you write a contract, you're helping the law to evolve. You help us to understand what's standard in a contract, what's not even in the contract, because everybody knows these particular provisions, the way the law evolves to deal with new technologies and so on. So law also a spontaneous order, which very few people understand. Even law professors, I think, don't really get that point. Another spontaneous order, money. These days, we think money is something created by the Federal Reserve, and they do create a lot of it. But initially, what was the purpose of money? I have apples, you have fish. We trade some apples for some fish. But then it turns out you have fish, but I'm allergic to fish, so I can't trade my apples to you for fish. Now what do we do in order to have a more balanced diet? Well, it turns out we might find a third person, make a three-way trade. Beyond three, it gets pretty complicated. So at that point, people look for a unit of exchange, and that can be all kinds of things in different places. It's been seashells, rocks, um, finely uh, honed stones. But a lot of places, it turned out, gold and silver seemed to have all the characteristics that you wanted um, money to have, a medium of exchange. And so we moved toward gold and silver. And then, just like with the law, sort of, kings got into it. And kings said, I tell you what, it's not really, um, it's not really money unless it has my picture on it. And so these are coins now. And they have my picture on them, and that's how you know they're real money. And then the kings discovered, you know, it's a one-ounce gold coin. If I shave 1% of the gold off of that, nobody's going to know the difference. If I shave 2%, nobody's going to know. If I shave 3%, crafty traders are going to start saying, this doesn't feel right. But if I shave 1% a year and another 1% 10 years later, you know, and so this is how governments started corrupting the money. And then they came up with a really good idea. There is a limited amount of gold and silver in the world, but there's pretty much an unlimited amount of paper. So if we just put my picture on paper, and then we say this piece of paper is worth an ounce of gold, well, we can print infinite amounts of that. And that's how we got inflation. It's, been a, it's happened many places in the world. The money evolved. If government stays out of it, the market does a pretty good job of saying this money is good, this money is not good. You've heard of Gresham's Law, bad money drives out good. I mean, people can tell the difference between bad money and good money. 
Um, continental banknotes in the American Revolution turned out not to be well backed up. They issued too many of them. People came not to trust them. They wanted to get real coins from Europe. Confederate dollars turned out not to work out so well once the Confederacy had no uh, assets, no taxes. Um, government, again, can distort the money that has evolved, but it can't actually do a very good job of creating it. Um, and then the one, the, the, the spontaneous order that's sort of most important for our politics is the economy. And here again, this is where smart people, intellectuals, really have trouble seeing that the economy is a spontaneous order. Every one of us gets up in the morning thinking, what can I do today to make my life and those of my family better? And that may mean making something, carrying something, selling something, making deals. Maybe I don't make anything, but I put together people who have and people who want, and I can make money that way. And through that, we go from trading apples for fishes to creating networks of finance that run across national borders, across continents, simply by having every person act in his own self-interest, his own family's interest every day, subject to the simple rules you learned in kindergarten, don't, uh, don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. If you do that every day, the economy will get a little more efficient, a little more productive, and we can go from trading, fish, trading loaves and fishes to having the world we see around us. And even if you've been terribly diverted from that process, if you've been living in Mao's China, you just start legalizing trades, and in 30 years, you can have the most rapid economic growth in the history of the world. You can go from being a desperately poor country where people fight over insects to eat to a country that has more capital than any other country in the world right now. Um, that is the spontaneous order that the market can generate, and virtually everything that governments try to do to improve on that spontaneous order is in fact distorting and destroying the spontaneous order. Every transaction that isn't made, every transaction that two people want to make and aren't able to makes, us, makes them poorer and makes us all a little bit poorer. Every transaction that two people don't want to make but are forced to make by government makes us all a little bit poorer. And the the accumulated effect of all the rules and regulations that government has come up with to interfere in the spontaneous economy um, costs us a lot. Hard to estimate how much costs us a lot. That's something libertarians understand. I use in my book, I talked about the coordinating process of the market. We all have plans. The market is the way we coordinate our plans, and it tells some of us that our plans are not very good. They don't satisfy human needs as effectively as somebody else's plan, so nobody wants to make the deal with us, and that's very frustrating. When we have an idea uh, for a product, for a trade, for a sale, for a, a use for a piece of property, and the market, the other people who are in a position to make that decision for themselves don't want to do business with you. But the coordinating process is to use the assets in society, use the factors of production as efficiently as possible to build wealth. And what the government comes in and does is discoordinate. 
Virtually everything government does besides enforcing property and contract is discoordinating the economy. The market is a coordination process, government is a discoordination process. So, number one, individual rights. Number two, spontaneous order. And the third big libertarian idea, limited government. Limited government to protect individual rights and spontaneous order. In the United States, we usually say limited constitutional government because we understand this limited government to be instantiated in our Constitution and in the system of laws that run from it. But there are countries that don't have constitutions and they still have law and order. They still have, they can still have limited government. And unfortunately, most countries that have uh, produced constitutions in the last century or so have created constitutions that don't limit government, that merely empower government, that take the powers we have as individuals and give them to the government. We understand that we have a government that is limited because we have our freedoms and our rights and our powers, and we decided, and there's, there's a lot of weight being done by that phrase, we decided, but I'll skip over that for the moment. We decided to delegate some of our powers to the government in the Constitution. We decided that to make sure they didn't think we'd given them more powers than we had, we would enumerate the powers that we were giving them. Mostly in Article I, Section 8, these are the powers of the federal government. And by delegating and enumerating them, we limited them. And then, just to be sure, it was suggested maybe this federal government should also have a Bill of Rights. And the objection to the Bill of Rights was, why do we need a Bill of Rights when we haven't given the government the power to violate any rights? But for greater caution, Madison said, we will write a Bill of Rights. And so they listed a bunch of rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, no quartering. The, the one amendment they've been really good about obeying, no quartering of troops in homes. Um, and then they wrote the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration of certain rights in this Constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, which gets back to my original point. The rights are retained by the people. They are not granted to the people. And then for yet more caution, this is trying to be a triply redundant system. They add the Tenth Amendment the powers not granted to the federal government in this Constitution are reserved to the states and the people. So, first we wrote a Constitution that said the federal government has these powers. Then we listed a bunch of things, a bunch of rights it can't violate, even in carrying out its delegated powers. And then we said, this isn't all the rights we have. And we are not giving up any of our rights, even though we didn't name them here. And then we wrote a Tenth Amendment, and remember, if we didn't name the power in this Constitution, then it remains with the states or the people. So, this obviously has not worked perfectly, and we could go the whole hour on that point, but the purpose is limited government. That's the third big idea for libertarians, individual rights, spontaneous order, and limited government. And then I'm going to mention one more basic idea that you wouldn't think needed to be said, but I worry someday, these days, maybe it does. We, by that I mean we libertarians and most of us Americans, 
are liberals in the classical sense. And liberalism is a universal creed. It means that we believe that all people are endowed by, with certain inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, not just some people. And that ideal is incompatible with political ideas based on concepts like blood and soil or treating people differently on the basis of their race or religion. And like I say, I shouldn't need to say that here, but it seems like we've had some examples in the past year or two of some people who don't seem to get the distinction that libertarianism, liberalism, means all people. There are many ideas in the world that are not universal, that are based on the idea that we people, whether that is we of our religion, we of our race, we of our land, we people are different and we have rules for us that other people are not entitled to. We liberals believe in a universal creed. Now, people have written books on all these complicated topics. I wrote one, but there are many books that I drew on. For me, it does in the end sort of come down to, I hold this truth to be self-evident, that it's wrong to initiate force against innocent people. Whenever I think about should the government do X, that's really what I'm thinking about. Does that involve the initiation of force against people who have not themselves used force? And if not, then there's not likely to be a persuasive argument for the government being able to do that. Now, all of you know, in practical terms, libertarians favor smaller government, less spending, lower taxes, free trade, civil liberties, personal freedom, a less interventionist approach to defense and foreign affairs, and we celebrate civil society, free association, and the social progress that they generate, and we seek strict limits on the size, scope, and power of government in order to maximize freedom. Another quick little concept that I like in talking about liberty is Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety also apply to government. Keep it small, keep it in a confined area, that's what the Constitution tried to do, and keep an eye on it, which is our job. That's what the Cato Institute does, the National Taxpayers Union, the Students for Liberty, all those kinds of groups. Keep an eye on the government and make sure it is kept small and in a confined area. Now, when I speak, I'm often asked, oh yeah, where's an example of a successful libertarian society? And my answer to that question is easy. The United States of America, not a perfectly libertarian society, but compared to most of what had gone before in the world, it was a country based on liberal values, on enlightenment values. It was mostly based on individual rights, a free economy, and limited government, and it produced the greatest efflorescence of not just prosperity, but peace and social harmony, at least for 100 years or so, um, that had ever been seen in the world. So. This is an example, and increasingly, more of the world, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, increasingly more parts of the world coming to appreciate the value of these ideas. And there's a book I read a few years ago by two Ivy League professors complaining that libertarian ideas are, quote, astonishingly widespread in American culture. 
They wrote a whole book on why you shouldn't believe in individual rights. And then they said, but you go out and you interview Americans and they just keep coming back to this idea that they have some rights, some freedom. They don't seem to understand that they don't have rights and freedoms. Astonishingly widespread in American culture. And we do not do a good enough job of connecting with that concept. Um, I've written some about the libertarian vote with my colleague David Kirby. If you ask me how many libertarians are there in America, I can give you answers ranging from maybe 100,000 to 100 million. Um, and I have good data for each one. Depends on how narrowly you, you define it. Uh, David Kirby and I did some survey research, polling research, and said, well, 15 to 20 percent of the American people hold ideas that we consider basically libertarian. On the other hand, I said earlier, you know, um, if you're fiscally conservative and socially liberal, then you don't fit into the Republican box, you don't fit into the Democratic box, and you're, you're leaning in a libertarian direction on both aspects of that, so that makes you kind of libertarian. We did a, we did a poll. We asked an online polling uh, service, Do you, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal? 59% said yes. The majority of Americans think they're fiscally conservative and socially liberal. But that ought to give us something to work with. Now, we also thought, well, let's find out. If you use the word libertarian, you're not going to get a number like that. If you go out and just ask people, are you liberal, conservative, libertarian, you're going to get a small number. But if you say, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, also known as libertarian? 44% will still say, yes, that describes me even when we throw in this word that they probably a lot of people don't even know, libertarian. So I thought that's interesting, which is why we enjoy a lot of freedom in America. Indeed, I would argue, I get a lot of pushback on this, but I would argue that America is more free on balance than ever before. And that is thanks to the founders and the constitution they gave us and the cantankerous individualist, free enterprising, revolutionary, don't tread on me people who make up this country. But we've always got the Hillary's and Bernie's on the left and the Huckabee's and Trump's on the right who think they could run our own lives better than we can, which is why the founders also told us that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. I want to move toward concluding by quoting something my friend Brian Doherty said in his wonderful book, Radicals for Capitalism, The History of the Modern Libertarian Movement. And that is a sort of double-pronged thing. Libertarian ideas are radical. They go to the root of the question of what powers and rights does the state have over the individual. And yet, they are deeply rooted in American and Western civilization, which now runs on approximately libertarian principles. Now, I said he said approximately. Not perfectly libertarian principles, but approximately libertarian principles. And the reason for that is something libertarians have a right to be proud of. We have been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries. But we have to keep doing it. It is to those libertarian ideas and those libertarian people that we owe the best parts of our civilization. More than a lot of libertarians want to acknowledge, we live in a world of freedom and progress. We have extended the promises of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to people to whom they had long been denied. And around the world today, more people in more countries than ever before in history enjoy religious freedom, personal freedom, democratic governance, the freedom to own and trade property, the chance to start a business, 
equal rights, civility, respect, a higher standard of living, and a longer life expectancy. War, disease, violence, slavery, and inhumanity have been dramatically reduced, and it is libertarian ideas and liberty-minded people who have made that happen. I was asked once by some skeptics what the most important libertarian accomplishment ever was. And I thought for a minute and said, the abolition of slavery. Okay, they said, name another. I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. <laughs> I thought that if you had the abolition of slavery on your resume, you were ready to meet your maker. But they said, name another. So I thought a little more carefully, and I said, bringing power under the rule of law. That was the fundamental libertarian achievement, but it is incomplete. It is what the Levelers and John Locke and the American Founders and Frederick Douglass fought for. It's what the protesters in 1989 fought for. It's what Rand Paul filibustered for. It's what our friends in Russia and China and Egypt and Venezuela and Iran fight for in circumstances so much more challenging than ours that we can barely comprehend it. It is what we fight for, and that is why it's always a great time to be a libertarian. Thank you very much. I believe we have a little time for questions, if people have any questions. Right here, are we bringing mics around? Or? Oh, I can, yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, I do think it's historical, um, and it's not that old a thing, because in, when the terms left and right originated, libertarians were clearly on the left. If, if we held our ideas back in the early 19th century, late 18th century, we would have been on the left wing of the liberals, um, wanting to push further and further toward constraining government, um, opening up markets, markets not monopoly, uh, uh, merit not status, um, science, not uh, the elimination of independent thought, um, all those things. And then, after the rise of communism, libertarians and conservatives found themselves both opposed to communism and also opposed to the rise of the welfare state in the United States. So that made early libertarians in the, I mean, there have been classical liberals from a long time, but in the late 19th century, early 20th century, classical liberalism really faded as a philosophy. So there weren't many people. We can point to individual names, but there weren't very many of them. 
um, you know, Mises and Hayek, who after all lived in Austria back then, and over here there was H.L. Mencken and Albert J. Nock and a few people, but not many libertarians. When libertarianism started to reemerge during and after World War II, um, libertarians saw communism and the welfare state as the big threats, especially since National Socialism, which was after all the National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, was being defeated. So communism and the welfare state, so libertarians and conservatives tend to be uh, together on that. And libertarians were more anti-communist and more anti-socialist and welfare state than many of the conservatives, so that gave them a, uh, an appearance of being far right. Um, to me, far right clearly implies things other than libertarian, um, but I understand why some liberals and journalists see it that way. And there is the current fact that the political leaders who are generally called libertarian, Ron Paul, Rand Paul, even Justin Amash, people like that, um, tend to be perceived with reason, as on the right wing of the Republican Party. Even though Ron Paul, for instance, is against the drug war, um, he still held a lot of views in common with the right, including some social issues like immigration, where um, he was not quite what I would think libertarians ought to be. Um, Rand Paul has been less forthright on the drug war than his father, and therefore is even more perceived as being sort of on the far right, the Freedom Caucus in the House. Some people call that a libertarian caucus, but in fact, you know, it's strongly pro-drug war, anti-gay marriage, all of that, but they're very anti-Obamacare, overspending, things like that, although they did manage to reconcile themselves to the $500 billion budget increase that they just passed. Um, so there have been all those connections, and to a great extent, Libertarians have never been perceived as prioritizing anti-war or civil liberties or police abuse, any of those things. The, the drug issue, I think libertarians are identified with. And so, you know, I had a conservative once tell me that his perception was that uh, libertarians were just gay conservatives. <laughs> the, other, the other thing is, you know, conservatives who smoke pot. Um, we don't oppose the drug war because we want to smoke pot. We oppose it because it interferes with people's individual choices. Some of us do want to smoke pot, some don't. Um, I, I know a libertarian writer. Uh, first time I met him, we were both in line at a, uh, a cocktail uh, hour. And when I got to the front, just ahead of him, I said I wanted a Coke. And he said, he knew who I was, I didn't know who he was, he said, Coke, I would have thought libertarians would drink whiskey. I turned and looked at him. I said, libertarians drink whatever they want. <laughs> um, but there's that sort of perception that if you're a libertarian, you must like guns. I don't like guns. Uh, you must like pot. I don't like pot. Um, and yet it hasn't overcome the right-wing association. I think Students for Liberty has done a good job of trying to fix that. You know, they change don't tread on me to don't tread on others or don't tread on anyone. That's a good reformulation of liberalism. Um, and they had the president of the ACLU here today. I think that's good. Unfortunately, she's going to go back to her office and tell her that no one came to her speech. So that's not going to do a lot for her perception of who libertarians are. But it was a good idea to have her here. And we've had her at a couple of Cato events too. Sorry, that was a long answer, but it is 
a big thing on my mind. Yes? I'd love to, but are there, in fact, Democrats who are disillusioned? Hi. Hello. <laughs> okay. Glad to hear it. Um, pardon me? I don't think you should be limiting Well, that, that's a good thing. And as far as I'm concerned, that is obviously the liberal position. Um, it, and it is kind of shocking that there has been a change in a lot of ways in on that issue. I actually asked a high-ranking ACLU officer last week, is the ACLU still solid on free speech? And I was told, yes, the chairman of the board is, the president is, the executive director is, the board of directors is. However, 200 young staff members of the ACLU signed a statement saying we really shouldn't be defending the freedom of speech of people like Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, 200 is out of 1,300. They have a big organization. But, and, and what I was told was, it's really an age thing. It's not even, if you look at the list of names, it's not even divided so much by, age, uh, by race or gender, it's, it's age. That's a problem, because if the younger ACLU members are not strong on free speech, there's a complication here on the free speech issue, too. There are groups like FIRE and the New Speech First that are being recognized as strong free speech proponents, but there are also groups like the vehemently anti-gay Alliance Defending Freedom who go around claiming that they're defenders of free speech. What they're defenders of is non-liberal speech, conservative speech, the kind of speech that tends to get censored. I have no confidence that they would speak up for the rights of left-wing speakers if campuses were dominated by conservatives and now the alt-right, the white nationalists, are talking about themselves as free speech martyrs. And let me just say, I have, you want to reach out to moderate Democrats? A good way is not to bring people like Milo Yiannopoulos to your campus on your podium. And I have seen college Republicans do this. I have even seen one or two libertarian campus chapters. And when I have asked them, what the hell are you doing bringing Milo Yiannopoulos to your podium to engage in racial provocation, their excuse is, we're defending free speech. No, you don't defend free speech by putting the Nazis on your podium. Milo's not quite a Nazi. The early ACLU, when they defended the free speech rights of communists, did not put the communists on the podium except to explain how they had been censored. They defended their rights. When the ACLU defended the right of the Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois, they didn't put the Nazis on the podium. They put the civil libertarians on the podium to talk about free speech. So I trust no one in here has thought about doing that. Um, I would like to see more evidence that there are Democrats and liberals who are uh, coming in that direction, and the more we can talk about things like criminal justice reform, and you know, one of the things that we, for the past really 18 months, have been trying to talk about to people on the left is 
We told you that if you gave the president and the federal government all this power, someday you would be sorry. Are you sorry now? And yet, I swear they still can't get that point. They voted to give the president more surveillance power a couple of weeks ago. This president would have been one thing if they said, we're giving the president more surveillance power and this law goes into effect January 20th, uh, 2021, um, gambling on defeating Trump. But, but they didn't. They gave the president more power. So we haven't succeeded at that. One of the things that I think has happened is not just maybe hyper-radicalization, but hyper-partisanship. So we just, we've got this bifurcation of people who get their news from the right, people who get their news from the left, and a handful of libertarians consciously trying to talk to both sides and to get information from both sides. I get the Washington Post. My partner sometimes picks up the Washington Times because it's free in his office, and he'll bring it home, and I'll say, okay, well, now we'll be able to figure out what's going on because we have the Washington Post view and we have the Washington Times view. But the truth is the Washington Post has 100 times as many reporters as the Washington Times. So you're going to get more news in there. Um, yes, we should reach out that way. But other than talking about the issues I've mentioned, I'm not sure exactly how we do that. Yes? You know, in a lot of places, uh, economic reform has only happened when you really did run out of money. Margaret Thatcher says the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. That's how it happened in New Zealand. That's how a round of reform happened in Argentina and even Mexico. Um, and obviously then the countries coming out of communism who started with basically no money, like Estonia. Um, we have not reached that state, and we keep warning that we've built up $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities, and yet, because we're the, nation, we're, the, we're the world's reserve currency, we have the strongest economy, we seem to be able to keep rolling this over and over, and it's a drag on the economy, but we're still growing. We haven't been able to convince people about this. Um, I do not worry that automation is going to leave us all without jobs. People have been saying that since the beginning of capitalism, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And indeed, the whole point of economic growth is to destroy jobs. Used to have 80% of people worked as farmers. Now it's 2% and probably only needs to be 1%. Um, Manufacturing is also seeing a decline in the number of people employed, although more manufacturing output. So all of that is the very definition of economic growth, and we clearly are better off. There are people who perhaps voted for Trump because they perceived that their economy, their economic status had declined because certain kinds of jobs had been destroyed. The truth is, and you didn't ask about truth, you asked about political appeal, so those are separate things. The, I know. So the truth is that 
we're pretty much at full employment. We went through a recession, but now we're pretty much at full employment. There are jobs. On average, they pay better than they used to. We clearly have a higher standard of living in terms of size of our houses, the appliances we have, the fact that I have all the information in the history of the world right here in my breast pocket right now. Um, all of those things are better. When you hear that the middle class is shrinking, you know what the reality is? The middle class is shrinking because they moved into the upper middle class. So you've still got some number of people below the middle class. And then you've got a broad middle class which is somewhat less broad now because the upper middle class has gotten bigger. But some people's relative status has fallen. They used to be well-paid union workers, and now they're not. And if they're of a certain age, it's difficult to become software coders or whatever. Um, and so their relative status may have fallen. There's also an angle that is mixed up there, which is it's possible that they perceive that their status has fallen while the status of people they used to look down on has risen. And I mean particularly people of color. It used to be, even if you were a poor white, you still got to look down on all the non-whites. And that's not true anymore. And I think for some people, that is a difficult thing to accept. So it's not the automation and everything itself that I worry about. Relative status is an issue. And it probably helps parties like Marine Le Pen in France, um, and certainly, I think, helped Trump here. We have good economic answers to that. Um, you mentioned UBI. You mentioned the cost of entitlements. Um, if UBI is going to cost less, then it's presumably going to deliver on average fewer benefits. Because the reality is the transfer state is not all that inefficient in terms of overhead. Most of what's in the transfer state goes in checks to people. So if you got rid of welfare and housing subsidies and Medicaid and unemployment insurance and in some formulations even Social Security and Medicare, you would save a ton of money and you could turn it into UBI, but you're not actually going to save much money if you want people to continue to get the same standard of living at public expense. And then the problem I worry about is that we will never actually get the trade that that some libertarians talk about, that we get rid of everything and replace it with UBI. Plus, if we do, and it goes to everybody, it's a universal basic income, then aren't politicians going to start bidding for raising the UBI? Um, and a lot of voters are going to perceive that they would, even the taxes that go up, they're going to benefit because they don't pay much in taxes. So I don't think there's an easy way out of that, and I think better answers fiscally are things like transforming Social Security and Medicare into funded plans, individual, you know, privatized Social Security. We could privatize Medicare in the same way, but that's a big political up, uh, uphill battle too. And so it may be that until we actually hit the wall, like New Zealand did, like Mexico did, um, we're going to have a great deal of trouble um, uh, solving that, that fiscal problem. Okay, I have to stop. Thank you all for being here.